When I think about the different musical phases, I also think about like whatever substances I was abusing that day. I can't help it. Yeah, no, of course. I'm guessing this is weed, no? I mean, at that time, I was really all over the place. Like I was trying everything I had never tried before. I was getting into some harder drugs around then too. What about Slint? What what are you abusing then? Brian swears that I showed up at all the Slint practices stoned, but I think I was just naturally stoned all the time. I mean, I didn't do much when I was in Slint at all. Oh, no, I did. I did some acid and stuff. Now that I think about it, because I was really into surrealism and, and I was trying to make musical surrealism as well as, you know, little sketches and stuff. I was really into acid too, you know, and when I was in college, like I would take it at the drop of a hat. Like I would like, oh, it's snowing. I'll take some acid. Oh, it's not snowing. I'll take some acid. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with the Brotherhood Obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. In this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on... David Pajo, part three of a very special five-part Pajo series. Episode three is Papa M, that is the entirety of his solo career. The two remaining episodes for all you fellow obsessives like me focus exclusively on slint and related acts like Four Carnation and King Kong. And Pajo has consented to rating all of that stuff between zero and five stars, so unquestionably that is don't miss listening. Look, if you know, then you know. But if you don't, then you're really in for a treat. Because tonight's guest was one of the founding fathers of emo and math rock, with both Slint and Tortoise, not to mention his ludicrously prolific, insanely high-quality solo career, but just on their own, his collaborations with Billy Corgan, Bonnie Prince Billy, Gang of Four, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, Royal Trucks, and Stereolab would qualify the man as a Hall of Famer. David Pajo is a legend. In the next hour, we'll learn about the surprise derivation of the Papa M band name from none other than Prince himself, exactly which substances David experimented with during his various recordings, and the three vastly different Papa M records that he is currently in the midst of making. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Although this particular episode is a regular interview, the standard Discography podcast is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guests and I explore their favorite band's entire discography in a futile but valiant effort to reach a higher truth. The show is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. Uh Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all the real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape 
of an artist's overall arc. Be sure to follow along with us chronologically as we go. The link to our legendary playlist is right there in the show notes. Coming up, we've also got Jennifer Harima from Royal Trucks rating the New York fucking dolls, both Vashti Bunyan and the Association rating the entirety of their own output, and Anthony Fantano, The Origin Story. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and click follow. And away we go then with David Pajo. Great segue into Pajo Solo. Typically the way I do things with a discography is to really go in depth. So if it was a typical episode, we would talk about every song on every record. Instead, what I did was more of a general with shout outs of specific songs and, you know, the main mood for each release. I've already been very familiar with these releases from when they first came out. When this was happening, when I was sort of collating my own personal research on your discography, I was packing my house in Long Beach, California, and was in the process of moving across the country. So these are A, more painterly impressions of the records without the in-depth analysis, but also it made it so affecting because your music is so emotional. By the way, we're talking about anything M-related. Pajo solo means Pajo, Papa M, Ariel M, and simply M. The only M it doesn't refer to is Fritz Lang's M. Uh, yeah, yeah. Why? What's the deal with M? When I started making solo music, I, I needed a name for it, the entity, because I didn't want to put it under my name. I wanted it to be judged by my past. I, re- I actually wanted it to be seen as new music at the time. And when you say past, your solo career, can we agree that it began in 1995 with M as the 13th letter? Well, I think it was actually around the same time, but I was asked to contribute a song to an Asian American compilation. And I, I just recorded on a four track cassette and gave it to him. But that was my first recorded release where I played all the instruments like drums and bass and guitar and, and it came out. And I think that was either 95 or 94, maybe even. But it came out before that M is the 13th letter single. It was a cover song of Zhao Gilberto. He did this song called Undo. And I made this really long version of it where <laughs> I, I don't remember much about it. It was really lo-fi because it was on cassette. So there's all this hiss. And then, ah, uh, yes. And there's just acoustic guitar and vocals for about, I don't know, like 10 minutes or something. And then, all the instruments come in at the very end for a short period of time. <laughs> so somebody asked you to do this and this begat then an entire solo career? Was it just like, oh shit, this is fun. I like this and I can see myself doing it. Or had you been thinking about it previous to that? When I was growing up and learning guitar, I was lucky to have a cassette four track. So I always made home recordings. So this has been something I've been doing my whole life, but I never went past the four track cassette. And I never shared it with anybody unless it was like, oh, I have this idea for a song here. I'll play this for you. But I was always recording myself, layering tracks and overdubbing, but I never shared it. And also being around people like John McIntyre and Brad Wood and Chicago audio engineers, I wanted to learn more about recording. I wanted to go beyond the cassette four track and learn about microphones and just, and so I thought doing a solo career would not a solo career. It wasn't a career. It was more like it would solve two problems for me. And one was, I was curious about what I was contributing to these different bands because I didn't know what I sounded like. And then two, I wanted to learn more about just audio engineering. And so I would basically be releasing all my mistakes as I learn more about recording, you know? I thought it was fascinating that you are involved in creating these works that are perfect representations sonically of a style of music. And then 
in your own personal work, you knock these things out that are like audio verite documents like Oldham was doing at the time. Yeah, yeah. Will Will was a huge influence on me at that time as well. We, you know, we were influencing each other for sure, even when we were kids. And like he would say, you know, like check out this record. And I, I would show him a record I had, or I'd show him a funny drawing I did, or he'd make a fanzine and we, you know, we'd work on it or something. With what Will was doing when he was discovering his own voice, all the slim guys were sort of alongside of that at the beginning. Was the four coronation an instigation for you? Did that light a fire under your tush to do something that was full on paha? Yeah, maybe. I didn't realize it, I guess, at the time. Because when I did the Four Carnation, I'd already done the first Ariel M record. I think I was still writing it probably then. Yeah, it did influence me for sure, because we recorded that first EP on a cassette 8-track at the Tortoise Loft in Chicago. And just, yeah, seeing how that was done was like, oh yeah, I can do this at home. The Fight Songs EP was recorded on a cassette eight track to me that's in a lot of ways the come from behind knockout punch of your career like that's the one you've heard the ones you've heard about that would be the first thing i would send somebody to if they heard the more obvious things wow that's really cool i'm i'm glad because i feel like tfc don't get enough love for sure fight songs is a perfect piece of music i think i agree it's stunning well i don't want to go there just because i'll cover it in i gotta put a nickel in the slint jar <laughs> I love Safeless, which is the A-side on that first release. More band-based and sort of brazen and puff-chested than your typical Papa M material. You had like a full band at that time, right? I mean, I'd already written the song. Uh, yeah, maybe it was like the fight songs recording. For some reason, I didn't think that I should play everything myself. I thought, you know, it should be a band. So I just showed the parts to my friends at the time. And uh, yeah, and it, it came out great. Like talking about substance abuse also, I was going through. Yeah, I think I was smoking a lot of weed then, which is why, and I was really getting into drones and stuff. And it sort of has a slint vibe, but it it all kind of becomes a drone by the end of the song. Well, it Um, does have a slint vibe. And the thing I think that stands out about M is the 13th letter is it feels more of a piece with the slint stuff than with the later Papa M solo stuff. Yeah. Once it becomes Papa M, it all sounds of a piece. Yeah. This is an outlier. Yeah. And once it kind of became Ariel M, that idea, was more solidified and the idea was that it's two guitars bass and drums and the guitars are in standard tuning like nothing fancy and no effects on the guitars like no looping or pedals not really i think there's barely any with ariel m there's really minimal effects or processing at all just like what can you do with that like i didn't think that that format two guitars bass and drums with no pedals and standard tuning i didn't think that was exhausted yet and i just wanted to see like how can you treat it more like an orchestra or like a string quartet rather than you know hammering out riffs first of all what is what is m what is the derivation of the band oh yeah the letter m it was kind of like an anti-band name i really loved when prince switched his name to just that symbol yeah Yeah. i love that idea like i just thought that was genius because yeah, yeah. It was so, I still think it's really cool that he did that, especially at the height of his career. Such a bold move. Um, and I wanted to have just a symbol. And to me, the letter M was a cool shape, almost like a lightning bolt, or it could be soft and curved. You know, I just thought it was a cool shape. And band names, like everyone trying to be clever with band names, was sort of not impressive. You know, so I was like, let's just call it M. It's on every typewriter, you know, it's on every keyboard. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, that became the theme, you know? Yeah. No, that's great. But yeah, it was really Prince that 
that, that gave me that idea. That's awesome. All right. So you have five releases as Ariel M. Uh, first one is just uh, Ariel M. And that came out in 97. So emotionally evocative. Uh, it's easy to forget with the whole math rock designation that you are really, truly amazingly adept at being able to directly convey profound melancholy in your music because the quote-unquote post-rock stuff is so methodically orchestrated that to have work like this stands in such beautiful contrast to that stuff. And the, the orchestrated stuff is, is extremely evocative as well, but this stuff is like really cracked open and laid bare. Yeah, I think that was part of the reaction to my experience with Tortoise, which I loved and I learned a lot from, but I wanted to bring more emotion into it, I think. And I wanted to simplify. With Tortoise, there were soundscapes where it was unlimited, you know, like there was no effect or sound that was off the table. And I wanted to create really tight parameters with Ariel M where there wouldn't be lyrics or vocals to kind of hold your hand to walk you through the song, like what it's about. You'd have to use your imagination. Yeah, I would be using those tools to express some abstract emotion because, you know, even sadness isn't just a dark emotion. There's like glimmers of light in it. One emotion is more of a kaleidoscope of different feelings. It goes up and down with what we would still call sadness or whatever. When you started with the M projects, did you think that you were never going to sing, that this was just going to be a series of four-track soundscapes? Yeah. Well, I wanted to go beyond four-track, but I thought I would, yeah, I would just do those two things. Like I would learn more about recording myself and I would learn more about what I sound like. Because I... I was like, what if I played all the instruments? Like, what would it sound like? You know, and, and Ariel M is what happened. So talk to me about Last Caress, because that is the moment where you realize that you didn't just have something to say, but you had something to convey through your singing that would really add to things. Last Caress, well, I have a, I have a long history with that song, because when Maurice toured with Sam Hain in 86 or whatever, like our last song of our set, was Last Caress, like before Metallica did it. And so we've always loved that song. And I remembered this story recently. Glenn Danzig actually showed me in a parking lot, I think changing a string. And he said something about our version of Last Caress. And he told me the right way to play it. And I picked it up and I was like, oh shit, okay, that makes sense. Well, I was actually taught the right way to play it by Glenn himself. <laughs> and then for the single, I did want vocals, but I wanted it to be like, um, did you ever hear the Charles Manson album? I don't know if it's yes. an actual album. Yeah, I yeah. really like it. There's some songs that are actually amazing. Eyes of a Dreamer. Totally. Eyes of a Dreamer is a classic. I, I'm, I'm so glad you're familiar with that. And that song Lies is great. Take Man. nothing from nothing, brother, it's all just the same. <laughs> so good. I hate to say it, but it is. It is, yeah. But like, I remember when I got the Manson record, I really wanted it to be this twisted, like, you know, an acoustic madman, you know, like into the mind of this killer. And it, when it wasn't, it was more kind of like 60s-ish and, and listenable. I was really surprised. So I wanted to make Last Chris kind of like the acoustic song that I wanted Charles Manson, like what I wanted him to sound like. When I got the record, I wanted him to sing about killing babies and stuff, you know? <laughs> and so that was my kind of tip of the hat to Manson. And I put these birds in the background, which or actually not even birds outside my house. It was like from a sample record or a nature album. And I reversed them just so that you can't tell that they're reversed, but something sounds a little off, you know? And I changed the lyrics a bit. I felt weird singing about rape. And then Will Oldham, I, I was like, you know, I feel kind of fucked up about singing this, even though I know that it's not my words and I'm not expressing my true feelings. And Will Oldham was like, well, you could 
change it to, you know, like I fucked your daddy or something like that. I was like, oh yeah, I'll do that. Like kind of make it more of a joke too. And by the way, always a good idea if you're not sure about the subject matter of your song to consult with a guy who has a song called There Is Cum In Your Hair and You're Dead. <laughs> No, he probably wasn't the best person to talk to as far as discretion goes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I really love Will's lyrics and, and he's not afraid to walk that edge of whether it's cool or not. He might go sketchy sometimes. Yeah, his lyrics are haunting. Uh, I remember the first thing that he released where I was like, holy shit, is uh, Trudy Dies. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Last Caress for me was a real eye-opener. At that time, there was nobody but Will Oldham who was capable of conveying that sort of generosity of spirit, who was capable of going there and reporting from that place of true melancholy. And then along comes you and you're able to convey that same type of mood, which is priceless. Yeah. So then you have both things going. You have great song craft and then you have your soundscape workouts like turn, turn, turn. Was there any incentive to name change from Ariel M to Papa M in 99? I think at that point, I'd gotten rid of the idea that it should be two guitars, bass, and drums. I started to embrace the tortoise idea of just unlimited sound, or like anything goes, basically. Like any kind of vagarious notion I have, I can follow. And so that kind of opened me up to make Life from a Shark Cage, which used all the fun toys and, you know, weird pedals and Indian drum machines. It was really fun. Like, I just wanted to enjoy making my solo records. And that kind of opened the door, and I didn't have the parameters that I had with Ariel M. I liked bands that had kind of like dedicated periods of time. I felt like I was going into a new period of time with the change of philosophy, I guess. The next five years or so at least seemed to me to be the most, you know, like the music was just pouring out of you. Yeah. Maybe it's just like any other period for you, but the amount of releases, you know, that was coming out of you at that time was pretty staggering. And the sense of freedom, like for example, with Live From A Shark Cage, the next song could be two minutes, could be 15 minutes, it could be a, a phone message that you threw on there, but it all hangs together and is of a piece. So what was going on in your life during this time that begat this kind of music? Well, at that point, I owned a house in Louisville and I was able to build a studio there just for recording myself. So that's why I had so much output on my own and I could experiment with stuff. And Shark Cage was mostly all done there. I did the drums for Roadrunner in San Francisco with this visually impaired guy that <laughs> that had a Pro Tools rig, which is really wild to have someone who's essentially blind running Pro Tools for you. I recorded one song at Albini's studio, and then I recorded I'm Not Lonely with Cricket at Tim Gaines' studio in London. Right, his right. His home studio. So it was, it was all over the map. 15 minutes and not overlong by a single second. Thank you. I still play that song live sometimes, and I, and I still love it. I'm surprised how cohesive the whole album sounds, despite it being like so ramshackle and recorded all over the place. I hadn't heard Turn, Turn, Turn in quite some time before uh, your version of it, before, you know, re-listening to it for this. And it's funny, the, the song that kept popping up in my head as far as the only thing I could see to relate it to would be Pharaoh Sanders, the creator has a master plan. I love the way the guitar parts interlock on that. And I guess I was into different music then too. I was moving away from the kind of musician-y stuff and getting more into the songwriting, the craft of songwriting from the 60s and 70s, you know, from different bands like Harper's Bazaar or something oh, random yeah. like that. And when I think about 
about the different musical phases, I also think about like whatever substances I was abusing that day. I can't help it. Yeah, no, of course. I'm guessing this is weed, no? I mean, at that time, I was really all over the place. Like I was trying everything I had never tried before. I was getting into some harder drugs around then too. What about yeah. Slint? What What are you abusing then? Brian swears that I showed up at all the Slint practices stoned, but I think I was just naturally stoned all the time. I mean, I didn't do much when I was in Slint at all. Oh, no, I did. I did some acid and stuff now that I think about it because I was really into surrealism and, and I was trying to make musical surrealism as well as, you know, little sketches and stuff. I, I think it was just like psychedelics and weed. Around the turn of the century now, there's an acid influence that's starting to creep in. I would already done all of my acid, I think, around by then. <laughs> I was really into acid too. You know, and when I was in college, like I would take it at the drop of a hat. Like I would like, oh, it's snowing. I'll take some acid. Oh, it's not snowing. I'll take some acid. You know? <laughs> but I think by the early 2000s and late 90s, like I think I, I was sort of done with my psychedelics and I was, you know, I was trying blow and I was doing heroin around then too. Not religiously, but I was, you know, I would do it sometimes, you know, just trying to figure out why all the other artists did it, I guess. Uh, Arundel was, gosh, I think somewhere I have a cassette version of my, my first time playing it. It was my first time that I'd smoked heroin. I probably shouldn't admit all this stuff, but I remember the like, first time I smoked heroin with a piece of tinfoil and stuff, and I came up with that song. <laughs> so, But it was like, with that version that I did, the initial one, it's so weird and slow and you know i'm still struggling to find the notes yeah and then when i came back to it in the sober light of day i was able to put it together into a song but yeah i was getting some inspiration from different drugs too i guess you know i appreciate your honesty and the systematic derangement of the senses can induce some amazing things i'd like to think that those things are discoverable within us regardless of the kinds of inebriation based choices yeah I, yeah i think i was trying to get to my deeper self and i thought that by doing certain drugs it would remove the veil so i could find that deeper self without all the other personality dramas happening did it work it did sometimes Hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3,000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three-times-a-week music deep-dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wildcard episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's the humdinger of them all. Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. I don't know if you know that single. Uh, is it Songs of Mac? Yes. Um, yes. Do you so know that warped, one? So yeah, with So Warped. Around that time, you were truly firing on all cylinders. I started listening to you around the late 90s, but then Papa M Sings and Whatever Mortal, Whatever Mortal especially, started becoming aware of you solo as a major talent. Like the kind of stuff that I needed to be listening to and hearing all the time. The first one I remember was Eye of Mine. I remember yeah. oh, wow. that and being like, He's not just the guy from Slint anymore. 
Wow, that's so cool. Because that's one of the few totally original songs on that EP. In fact, that might be the only one that I wrote. I love that song too. I think about the words a lot. I love I mean, the change where it goes do 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 do. Yeah. I really love the tempo and the rhythm. There's a relaxed offhandedness about it, but it's very much orchestrated. I was really into Nick Drake's guitar playing, not even like his songs, but just like his technique. I was trying to do my version of that around that time period on whatever more and pop m sings and yeah like whatever mortal and life from a shark cage are such different records in the same way that maurice is so different from slint or something whatever even though they're both really close to each other in terms of time once i'd done the instrumental stuff and being able to use any sounds like i didn't have the parameters anymore i realized that i was kind of not being true to myself because i wasn't listening to music like that anymore i kind of stopped listening to instrumental music i was mostly listening to like every brothers and like just old music jimmy rogers the singing breakman and old country like lefty favorite thing about jimmy rogers is that you have to say the last part of it it's almost like it's on his birth certificate yeah yeah (laughs) well there's another jimmy rogers i think who's a blues guy and so sometimes the old jimmy rogers that i have to mention i wanted to make music that was closer to the music i was listening to which is what started pop m sings and will oldham was encouraging me a lot to sing i was touring with him a lot and i really enjoyed singing backing vocals with them and stuff. That was my transition, getting back into lyric-based music. It's so funny that he was your main source of inspiration, considering that you were probably the only competition he had in that realm. <laughs> yeah. It's so cool of him that, you know, that he encouraged me because we we did help each other out. Like I'd help him out on a tour. He'd come over and help me out with my solo stuff. You know, he made suggestions. <laughs> One suggestion that I didn't use, but I always thought was funny was on, you know, the song sorrow rains blue oh yeah that was actually i was dating or sort of dating a girl named sarah rain blue which is such a cool name you mentioned her by name in there oh yeah so i tried to change it to sorrow rains blue but anyway like that part where i mentioned my penis because it rhymes so well with between us i couldn't resist like uh i was like i wonder if i should beep that out and will was like well it might be off-putting to have the suddenly this loud beep in the middle of a song like but he was like if it really bothers you you could just put the sounds of coconuts being hit together or something <laughs> i thought that was funny to have some fred flintstone sound like or over the bad words but i ended up keeping it will also said about that song he was like the first time i heard it i laughed out loud and then the second time i heard it i felt like crying you know <laughs> which is to me the like one of the best compliments one of my favorites on it is crusty i especially love the uh, one that it explodes out into the band style rock action toward the end i had this tape recorder that i loved i bought it in france and you could record on it set the record level so you could get this natural compression so i'd record all these little ideas and that was an idea i had where i don't remember what tuning i was in but i remember i capoed just half the strings so it's probably not that hard to play but for me to figure it out now i don't know what i did but it was on this little cassette recording where i was watching the simpsons yeah it sounds like you were just sitting in a chair and it just kind of came to you yeah and i just wanted to record it so i didn't forget it that's all it was and i was watching the simpsons and i didn't even notice that i laughed until i went back and listened to it (laughs) and i was like oh i should turn this into a song with drums and stuff i can hear it sort of like jimmy page coming in like all of a sudden but i couldn't improve i just liked the laid-back feel of that cassette recording and so i used that 
that as the template for when the full band version of that idea, you know, and it's it's kind of like shows how the demos or the, how the idea starts and like how it ends up. I was just doing fun mind games on that record, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So the EPs that started coming down the pike, the one, two, three, four, preceded oh, yeah. by three songs. Actually, let me talk to you about three songs first, because first of all, you got the cover shot that was taken on 9-11, just in case mm-hmm. somebody had the mistaken impression that you were a purveyor of happy sounds. <laughs> <laughs> that has what is unquestionably my favorite thing that you've ever done in your solo career, which is Low the Rose Cease the Bloom. Wow. I've always thought that that was your most towering accomplishment. And also, I think it's somewhere around six, seven minutes long. It's just a mood that I feel exists on its own. It sort of has a boots of Spanish leather, Bob Dylan, miracle quality to it. Is that a, an original song or a, a traditional? Or I feel like a lot of those songs around that time period are all a hybrid of old songs and contemporary songs and <laughs> my take on it, my spin on it or whatever. But yeah. that one was based on a folk song and I can't remember which one. It's not iambic pentameter, but it, you know, it follows the same rhythm, I guess, of this folk song. And I stole some of the words here and there. One word might... You know, it might be like he didn't have shoes on and then I would, or like it might be that kind of verse and then I make my own couplet that goes with it or I make it about a wedding or something. Um, that's a really cool one. I should revisit that. I, I forgot I mean, about you, that song. It, it, you sounded surprised that I brought that one up. Is that a song that nobody ever brings up to you? Nobody. I mean, to me, that's clearly your best song. Like it's oh, a man. fantastic piece of work. One thing I'm working on now, this is jumping to the moment, is I am kind of doing new versions of older songs. Like I just recorded a version of Rainbow of Gloom that... Oh, um, just because it seems like I, I feel like I relate to it again or something. Or I just found myself singing it when I would play acoustic guitar. Maybe it, that record that uh, that Will put out that was like a what the fuck compilation of slick sounding versions of older songs. Yes. I still have never heard it, but I, I heard it was like a Nashville version of all his old stuff. Well, it feels like his version of Bob Dylan's self-portrait, like he's going oh. with people. Yeah. Because those records especially Days in the Wake and that era of his record making was purposely as raw as you could possibly get it. And now you have like very professional pedal steel players and purposely anodyne, almost Peter Cetera-like arrangements. I mean, knowing Will, I feel like that's probably his way of showing people that he wants to be not known as a songwriter, but he wants to license his songs to other songwriters, you know, to to other musicians. Like, you can take my songs and pay me Mm because see how they can sound, you know, (laughs) like, but this, what I'm doing is more just like taking your old song that's still, that's still with me. Like, still can't seem to escape it and putting it through my new outlook or my current outlook which is like what sounds good to me right now with my solo stuff i never felt like the recorded versions were the definitive ones like they were just templates for us to have fun with live we would loosely follow the the recorded versions i hope you're examining this period because these eps there's an obscene amount of great stuff on here like uh flashlight tornado is a classic Uh, love that song and i am the light of this world gorgeous man 
Oh, I forgot about that one too. Man, you really, you you know that part of my career better than I do for sure. That's my but, favorite part of your solo work is probably from 2001 to 2003 or four. You know, it was like you were flinging these things out left and right and they weren't just stopgap things. This is like 13 minutes here, 17 minutes there and really self-contained works. Man, that's really cool that you noticed that because I, I must have really been writing a ton. There's so much stuff I didn't put out too around that. I found a bunch of hard drives that I need to go through. You know, it's on this archaic <laughs> system, so I don't know where how I'm going to transfer them. But I remember pulling songs off of whatever mortal I wouldn't use, and like taking stuff off of EPs and things, just different covers I tried. And, and I would, I'd really be interested to hear the stuff that I didn't put out now because I feel like there's some cool stuff in there. There's got to be because these releases, there were a lot of them, but they were brief. I mean, they all averaged yeah. 10, 15 minutes. Flashlight Tornado, it's interesting that you mentioned that one because after Berman passed away, I remembered one thing. We talked a little bit, David Berman and I, we hung out a bit over the years, you know, but there was one time I ran into him in Louisville and I think he was, you know, we were both kind of maybe fucked up but he told me that he just heard flashlight tornado and how much he loved the song and um he was like the lyrics like you have a ton of voice in it that's great he's never complimented me like even when i met him in the 90s and stuff that was the only time he's ever complimented me but he loved flashlight tornado so much and i remembered that when i wrote that i just read actual air and loved it and uh, I was like, I want to try writing in a Berman style. And that's what I came up with. And that's the one song that he loved. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it that is, is awesome. incredible. But yeah, I, I do like that song. I, maybe that's one I should revisit too. Yeah, that one for sure. If you're looking for more ideas, oh my God, please. Mary was the kind, one of your all-time classics. I thought I had a couple Mary songs, but which one was that again? Mary was uh, the kind. Uh, so on two, uh, you have Black was the color and World's Greatest Sin. Solid songs, but Mary was the kind. That's the standout on two. Is that the one where it's the where everybody dies by the end of it? <laughs> it's, um, it's so dark. Everyone dies by the end of the song, like no one survives. <laughs> this is piano-based. Here we go. I'll skip through a little bit. Oh, man. Do you remember this at all? Oh, barely. It's another one I have to check out. Thanks for reminding me. Especially because these were released so fast and furious. Man, I'm begging you to look at some of this stuff again. Maybe yeah. it doesn't resonate with you. Maybe that'll be the takeaway. Then on three, I remember thinking at that time, like, whoa, you know, we went from these autumnal Nick Drake-ish ruminations to Truck Stop Girl and, oh, yeah. uh, and Wild Mountain Time, which is, uh, I love that song. The sole original, uh, who knows? And then even better than three, four is interesting. It's got uh, Long May You Burn. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. That has this interesting thing where it feels like you're really reaching for the heavens in a almost Brian May-like solo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Was that an influence? I was going for a Brian May kind of guitar tone. But then while I was recording, I remember I broke a string. Like I, I was bending an out and it, the string snapped. And I, I thought it would be, well, different. I thought it'd be funny or interesting at least to leave that on the recording. So I'm in the middle of the solo and all of a sudden it just goes, and, like the, and you can hear me kind of struggling to get back into the solo. What's the story with Local Boy Makes Good? That feels like that was your biggest chance at having a hit, whatever that means, up to that point. I think that was uh, that has pretty abstract lyrics, if I remember correctly, right? Or yeah, it, it's um, an interesting one because it feels like oh, this could be a hit, and then the finale, which is batshit crazy, takes that right off the table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like you were moving so fast through the music that was coming through you that you don't even recall a lot of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the audio tour diary series, one through six or whatever, There was, I think there was supposed to be three more after that. It was all done during this one period when I was recording with that. I mean, that was taking up all my time, but I didn't want Papa M to die. While I was playing with Zwan, I had, had all these ideas that weren't being, didn't have a, a uh, an avenue, didn't have any kind of release. So I thought it the audio tour diary would be a good way to just get out my own ideas um, without having them sabotaged by anybody else. Yep. And then I would also be able to keep Papa M going. And I really did think of them as like there were diaries. I love this area of your solo career. And did Zwan effectively, unintentionally kill this mode of songwriting for you for a little while? No, not really, because I think after Zwan split, I did the Paho record. I, I did two Paho records after that. Yeah. And I think we're getting into like yeah, wait, let's not, let's, now. Or? Yeah, let's not get there quite yet. Because uh, okay. about uh, the work you do with Christina Rosenvinge, Petals Weep, especially, and, and Nickel Song. You know, I know she wrote a bunch of the stuff on Five, right? That's right. Yeah. We both uh, collaborate. Like she gave me one of her songs and I, and I gave her one of mine. And we both worked together on them for Five. Five is awesome. So it was a really good thing to come back and rediscover. Six as well. Six is amazing. I think even better than Five with Diane Williams. That's right. Yeah. Right. It feels almost like, especially the trees do grow so high, feels almost like a poppier twist on Fairport Convention. Again, I think I was exploring the recording techniques, recording with Swan. I, I was learning some stuff, you know, just by being in the studio all the time. And being around Corgan, I was seeing how he writes these like pop songs, basically, you know. And I think uh, maybe that was not not me trying to make my own version, but I think that's how I thought things should be done, at least at that moment. Um, I wasn't trying to write a pop song for sure, but I think I was still thinking in a in maybe a poppy kind of vein. You had the Corgan brand sausage grinder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then comes the self-titled Paho record. Now you're busting out of M and seemingly owning your name. It's not your first full length because that was Ariel M. This is your second? Yeah. What are your recollections from this time of recording? What were your hopes for the Paho record? And do you feel like, you know, you were able to deliver on what you had intended? Yeah, that one's a weird one. At that time, I mean, that time I was really depressed. I think that was the first time I had 
started where I, you know, for a flash, the idea of suicide actually seemed like a tangible thing to me, like, or like maybe a good idea. And what, so I was super depressed before that record. Was, and, was it just from inside you? You know, as the ending of a relationship, that's how both of them started. Cause I, I think I just had put so much into the relationship that when it bottomed out, I just like didn't have anything or I felt like I didn't have anything. I wanted to make a record under my own name. It didn't seem like Pop M stuff because it's everything seems so confessional, almost embarrassingly confessional. I didn't think it seemed like a Pop M record. With that one, <laughs> again, like I make these little, I, I, when I start a record, I feel like I have to have some kind of box to work within or, or else I can't get motivated. And, and for that one, just on the engineering side, I, I wanted to make it all in GarageBand because GarageBand had just come out and I was like, wouldn't that be funny if I made an entire record with this audio program that anybody can get. I also used all, you know, I used all this great analog stuff that I had, you know, I, I guess I proved to myself that you can make a record with any tool really. So you're, you're more turned on by restrictions than by inspirations, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. I Because we live in a world where there's just so many options. Like, Right, right. It helps the, with the decision-making process if I have to commit, if I have some parameters, you know? Otherwise, I can hem and haw about all the millions of options, all you know, and it'll never get done. I guess every record's like, I have to have some kind of restriction to move forward in it. Otherwise, I'll get bogged down in all the decisions that could be made. You're a fan of surrealism and Salvador Dali, he would wear shoes that were purposely too small so they would hurt so he'd be able to be cognizant of being alive right now in the present moment wow i didn't know that yeah, I don't know if I'm as much of a masochist as that. Um, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, you know, because I feel like I have enough pain to be in the moment at all times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Life wasn't traumatic enough for him. Yeah, right? yeah. Let's make it just a little bit worse on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I do find myself more invested or connected with the tour diary stuff than I am with Paho. I remember when uh -huh. that came out. And by the way, I don't think it's a, a bad record. I think it's a good record. But it didn't move me quite as intensely as what had just come before. Although Mary of the Wild Moor is a real callback to, you know, what I find to be the, the more effective material that you were gravitating towards. That's the folk song where all the characters die. Mary and her father and her kids and everything. Like, yeah, that's the only one that's lo-fi and is in the folk tradition. That's the only one that's similar to the Tour Diary series. I love uh, Manson Twins, too. That's a great one. Oh, yeah. That was me trying to... I don't know. Like, I, I have these weird takes. Like, I, I'll try to do a Bruce Springsteen-style song, and it won't sound anything like it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was my right. Bruce Springsteen-style song. I couldn't promote that record at all. It was. I tried to tour it. It sucked singing those lyrics every night. Because to me, it's a really painful record. I can't even listen to it. And I don't even know why anyone would listen to it. And the only reason is because it's just the lyrics. It's kind of a disguise because the music isn't painful. The music is mostly upbeat and happy sounding. But lyrically, I couldn't sing that. Like, I just had to stop touring because I couldn't sing those songs every night. It was just bringing me back to that place that I didn't like. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so in a sense, it was kind of the way out of the depression, but it kept you mired in it? Absolutely, yeah. Maybe just out of curiosity. I'll want to hear it. So what about 1968? Is that the same bag? I mean, it, does it bring you back to the same place? No, that one was more positive. I think I was getting back on my feet then. And I'm such a schmuck, man. <laughs> I just, I was in love again, you know, oh, yeah. everything's cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
To me, that one's a lot more positive. I love Foolish King. I love We Get get Along Mostly. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I've just restored my will to live again. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. That's great. Ultimately, at the end of the day, with all of your McIntyre gained studio wizardry, all you really need from Pajo is a hissy tape recording of you and an acoustic guitar. Right. Which is Scream With Me. And I recorded that before the first Pajo record. You you know that one, right? Which the Misfits cover record. So you kind of took a break for three years after 1968. And what you came back with was the Misfits covers record, right? The Misfits covers record didn't come out until afterwards, but it was recorded oh, before the, that actually, I, sh- I don't know why I didn't explain it better, but that was actually the impetus to make the first Paho record was I was living in New York and I was like, I want to make an album, but you know, I'm kind of at a loss for, you know, for songs. And, uh, I was, uh, I was like, well, who's some songwriters that I admire? Maybe I can take apart their songs. And I was like, well, I love the Everly brothers. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to cover their, you know, they're, they're based on harmonies and stuff. And, and then I, I was like, well, I've always liked Danzig songs. I felt like they could stand on their own if you took out all the aggro and distortion and stuff. Like they're actually just good melodies and chord progressions. You know, they're they're almost like you know the absolute essentials for a memorable song. And so I wanted to strip down his songs and just kind of put them into a folk language that was easily palatable or whatever. And so I recorded those on a borrowed tape recorder when I was house sitting in Brooklyn, and then I just left the tape in there and just never thought about it again. And then I was having some promo photo taken or something. The photographer was playing it. And I was like, how did you get this? And he, he was like, oh, I was shooting Sean Marshall from Cat Power the other day. And she played it. And, and you know, I made a copy from her. And and I was I was like, I wonder how she got it. And then it was like the person I was house sitting for had found the tape. And I thought they'd be mad because I taped over whatever was on there. <laughs> um, and then burned a CD of it. And then it started making the rounds, I guess. And then finally, a friend of mine was like, I'm starting a label. Can I put it out? It's probably the most pure recording I've ever done because it it was never intended to be heard by anybody. And then it came out and some people like it, you know, better than anything else I've done. It's weird. But that was done in 2004. Okay. And then just before came out. the, yeah, that was when it was recorded. And then it kind of found its legs after 1968. But then what wound up happening after 1968 to twist the spigot off after the five-year avalanche of amazing solo releases? What happened there? Well, just like uh, having kids, basically. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was just dad life. It's not like you're not, but you're always doing something, but your self-generated releases, the next thing after that was Avila's Hexes at the end of 2009. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big gap. I was becoming a, I was a dad then. So my daughter was born in 2006. So yeah, I was putting everything into that. Well, we forgive you. <laughs> but it, you know i still did the stunt reunion in 2005 and then started dead child in 2006 so it was like you know the music never stopped but it yeah songwriting stopped i guess yeah, yeah i saw you guys at fyf for the the slit reunion that was fucking tremendous wow so highway songs again a, a whole shitload of years go by you know w- posting the suicide note and all of that stuff D- did that bring you back to Papa M connecting with that early voice? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Like I felt the need to use that moniker again to 
to make an audio statement. And that's for sure a weird record. All instrumental, except for Little Girl. Unsurprisingly, the most traditionally Paho-esque thing on the record and is the very last song. So yeah. is this another intentionally giving yourself those kinds of parameters to look for and reestablish your voice while taking away the actual voice? Yeah. You know, I felt inspired to write again. My idea behind that record, or the impetus for it, was there's a style of composition called through composing that either McIntyre or Jim O'Rourke told me about. I can't remember who, but one of them had told me about through composing, which is where it's mostly like operas and stuff where a song doesn't really go back and repeat itself, but it's like a soundtrack to a narrative. So it's almost like Captain Beefheart or something where you don't have to follow any kind of verse chorus structure. The song just goes completely in any direction and it doesn't have to go back and repeat itself ever. I think that's all I could manage to do in the headspace I was in after my attempt. I couldn't write a verse chorus type song to save my life. Like all I could do was these weird tangential songs, you know? Like it starts off with that metal kind of one. The and flatliners. And then the love particle, it's like oval, like glitch experience. Right. That song is mostly, it's like another song on the record in reverse, basically. And then I turned it into a song or I just glitched it out like crazy. It felt like you broke into somebody's house and you went into their closet and you were trying on their clothes. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. The record, I didn't. That's another tough listen. And that calling it highway songs was, you know, the obvious metaphor that it's, you know, life is a highway and these are the different twists and turns or whatever. But I also wanted it, I thought it'd be funny if it was like on cassette at a truck stop and some trucker right, picked right. it up thinking it was like, oh, I'll listen to these on the road. I figured that the album title was actually an attempt at some kind of perversity, you know, because if I didn't know anything about you and I'd never heard Slint and all I heard was Papa M, I would assume your biggest inspiration would be maybe Towns Van Zandt. So Highway Songs, you know, it feels like this is more Towns Van Zanty kind of stuff. And man, is it anything but that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's another tough record, I think to listen to, but I just had to make it. Um, I just yeah. had to get it out of me. Like all records, I cross my fingers. Like I hope that it's actually good, but I have no idea. I like it enough to put it out, but I don't know if it's going to you know, stand the test of time or anything, or if I'll like it later. I believe it's a necessary album in the course of your discography. It's not my favorite, but it seems intentionally like it's not designed to be a favorite record, just a necessary one. Yeah, it was definitely necessary for me at that time. I do really love a, a Broke Moon Rises, though. What are your feelings on this record looking back? This one seems like a super personal one. Yeah, I love that record. I worked, I worked too hard on it. Again, I was in the wheelchair the whole time I made it. Because right. uh, like Highway Songs, the first part of it was after my attempt and before my mo motorcycle accident. And then I had the motorcycle accident and I finished Highway Songs while I was in the wheelchair and I also recorded Highway Song in the wheelchair. So this was again, like, you know, the parameters were for acoustic guitars and almost like Aerial M because I started to realize that I liked the instrumental Aerial M stuff. That was the best, at least at that time. And um, I didn't want to go back and do Aerial M, but I liked music for 18 musicians. And I thought, what could I do with four acoustic guitars? And I was also into Arvo Park. That song, Spiegel and Spiegel, when I wrote my suicide note, or maybe it was the letter to my parents, but like I requested that song at my funeral. Like that would be the song I wanted playing, which is a pretty heavy thing to, to say. Again, like if I don't understand why I like 
a band or a song so much, I feel like I have to learn how to do it myself. And then I, it makes sense to me. You mean like ingest their thing and their vibe and make it your own and kind of tackle it and conquer it? Yeah. Cause I want to, it's like, that's the education for me. And so I wanted to figure out what it was that I loved about Arvo Parr. And I read about, he had that songwriting technique, Tintambula or something. I, I, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. It's a little more esoteric to try to explain it, but it makes sense to me. And especially learning that song, it, it made sense. I think the only thing I did that was off the broke the rules. Remember that Dharma and movie making that Harmony Korine did? It's called Dogma Films. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. They had all those parameters. Like, that's kind right. of like how I approach different records. And if I broke the rule that I made for the record, that was okay, you know, because breaking rules is also important. <laughs> right. So the only rule I broke on that record, I think, was the bass and the kick drum not being acoustic. And there's one note in Spiegel and Spiegel where I'd, I wanted to hit this really high note that didn't exist on the acoustic guitar. Mm. So I just, I had to pitch shift it up. <laughs> but otherwise, it's all acoustic. Did you feel any kind of a kinship with the early Sebado recordings that Lou Barlow was doing? I loved all that stuff. Yeah. 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 Weed Forston. I yeah, love Weed. You know what? Weed Forston, especially. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. That had a major effect on me. Yeah. Me too. That early Lou Barlow stuff is. Oh, man. Yeah, that was a major thing for me. And your work seems kind of a, of a piece with the bedroom recording stuff that, uh, not bedroom pop now, but back when, man, did it get hissy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then the piano sessions in May 2018, which reminds me a lot of Neroli, the Brian Eno record. Right. Really, really true contemplation music, like actually scratching your chin, sort of like classic contemplation that evokes a real all-encompassing stillness. Now, this is you. You went to England to do this, right? Yeah. And that was after I'd gotten out of the wheelchair, but I'd been writing and practicing the songs nonstop while I was still in the wheelchair. Yeah. Again, it was just, I wanted to write songs on piano and I wanted to use negative space has always been an interest of mine, like, you know, using the silence or the space between notes, like it's an, another member of the band. Yeah. That's always been a concept that I've loved. And I was trying to do that, at least with one of the songs on that my piano sessions, like use the space as part of the music is an important part of the music or use the space and the silence to express an emotion. <laughs> so talk to me about bad time stories. That was like the stuff that uh, I was working on that eventually became the idea for A Broke Moon Rises. I just had these like little sonic experiments. And again, like I was in the wheelchair and I was these things were how I passed the time. Like what, what if I play this melody that's in, you know, some weird time signature, and then I play another melody on top of that, that's in a different time signature. And like, how many times will I have to repeat before they sync up again? You know, weird, I, I guess it's truly math rock or whatever, but I, I guess that's what it was. It was mostly just each little interlude was like a little sonic experiment. Man, do I hate that designation, math rock. Math rock. Yeah. yeah I mean, I do too. It's your fault. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, the reason I have to count and do stuff is because I'm not good at improvising. Like if I was better at improvising, I feel like I wouldn't have to create these weird numbered things, you know? I didn't want to get my hopes up, but it seemed like by this point, by, you know, 2018, 2019, that uh, Papa M was back, or at least that you were toying with the idea of it being back. There's three records that I've been trying to make. They're all really different, but I had the concepts worked out in my head and written down and stuff. It's been hard 
hard to find the time to focus on them because I'm I'm always playing catch up. Like I have other commitments I'm trying to catch up with. I'm eventually going to release these three albums, and they're all they're vastly different. Is it like a conceptual guideline on each of them? Yeah. You mind me asking about the parameters? Yeah, I, I mean, it's just a way for me to help categorize because I, you know, if you have like all these billions of ideas and none of them really <laughs> seem to connect, like I have to put them in little boxes just for me to release them, you know? I can give you sort of rough ideas. Like one record I want to do is an experiment with distortion, like layers of distortion. And that's just for the production stuff, or it could just be a hint of distortion, or it could be tube distortion or tape or microphone. Have you heard the noise? The Neil Young record that Daniel Lanois put together called La Noise. Oh, I don't think I've heard that. It's yeah. a similar process where it's just layers of distortion and that's his band is uh, is the distortion that he creates. Oh, wow. I think this is going to be less noticeable than that. It really is just like something probably only I'll notice. Because if you heard the songs that I have, you probably wouldn't notice other than maybe it sounds <laughs> not lo-fi because it's not. It's still sort of hi-fi. It's hard to explain. Are you recording but at home? Is this yeah yeah it's all recorded at home there's also like i want to revisit old songs and actually if you wouldn't mind sending me your favorite songs from that time period that you're oh yeah talking about because that's been really helpful to remind me of these songs that i forgot about you um, got it. yeah that would be cool i want to do old songs but kind of do it in my current state of mind or whatever which doesn't mean really anything it's still going to sound like a pop am record i think it's exciting to me because you sound inspired i am yeah and now since my attempt my voice has changed so i can't i can't sing at all like i used to like everything before my attempt may i ask because i don't know how you attempted to do it was it a hanging attempt yeah yeah i'd have stitches and stuff it permanently changed my voice and at first you know i think afterwards i was like wow wow i guess i'll never sing again <laughs> but now i'm treating it like oh this is my new voice because i feel like singers that stick around for a while like neil young still sounds the same cat stevens yeah. still sounds the same but Bob Dylan doesn't. He has like, I call it his third voice or maybe his fourth or fifth voice. I and love Bob, but it sounds literally like he's singing through feces. Yeah. <laughs> he's choking like, on feces while he's singing. That yeah. sounds like a frog now. Like it's, He does, um, but yet at the same time, his work now is almost as vital as Blonde on Blonde. Totally. I, I totally not, agree with you. I don't you. think it's as good, but it's almost as vital. Yeah. I feel like he's being more open now than he ever has been, which is cool. Sharing his knowledge and stuff. But Leonard Cohen had a third voice, or maybe you could call it his second voice. You know, his voice broke again in, in old age where he had, went very full on, very wide. He went from sounding like an almost starry eyed folk singer to like he had this voice of Jehovah, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so I, that's how I'm approaching it now. And I actually, I feel like I sing better now. I don't have the range. Like I can't hit high notes. My range is really narrow, but the notes I can hit, I actually hit them all the time now. <laughs> Whereas before I was always kind of like, I hope I'm hitting the right note. Do you have another Papa M thing that's coming out or is it just under an assortment of different monikers? And that's always the last thing I figure out. It's usually after the recording, I figure out you know what moniker it will be, but um I feel like the one where I revisit the old songs, that should be a Papa M record. Yeah. It's just kind of like I'm updating. Or I think they're good songs in the versions that were recorded weren't the best way to present them. I think that'll be a Papa M record, the, the vocal thing that I'm talking about. I'm psyched to hear that stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I'm working on it after we stop. 
I'm going to go upstairs and do some vocals. So yeah, I'm, I'm always chipping away at it. Eventually they'll come out. Well, you know, you too have a record coming out tomorrow that's a 40 song revisiting of their early stuff. So if Bono and the Edge are engaged in it, that means aesthetically you're on the right track. <laughs> 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 man even if you didn't have any of the other stuff your own discography is such a massive overflowing waterfall all right that about does it a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer todd zimmer my beautiful wife and son jen and mason david pajo drag city records jeff kamara for hooking this thing up my incredibly loyal fans and especially the entire patreon community the soldiers of sound i love every last one of you and this show would not exist without you my friends Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator, and much more. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, hey, it's no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you regular as it were. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper is to get thee directly to the David Pajo series right from the beginning, which begins at episode 94. Then there's episode 95, part two. And then of course the upcoming ones, if you're listening later than the day on which it came out. Not to mention the Pavement series and the Lou Barlow series, where I Gen X'd myself half to death from episodes 49 to 60. 62 with the help of Lou himself and the awesome Bob Nastanovich. Also, episode 12 is PJ Harvey, and episode 18 is Pixies. Crucial listening, too. But wait just a minute. This is just the entrance to the rabbit hole. Join us as we descend down, down, down on Discography's week-long Pajo Peyote 2 Deep Dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday brings the Patreon-only wildcard episode, The David Pajo Patreon Collection, Volume 3, in which Pajo and I talk about the functionality of shred metal as a parent, the splendors of slowcore mainstays Codeine, and David's most recent work with the band A Broken Sale. Not to mention Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography's The Private Press, part two of our four-part interview series with Texan psych legend Bill Miller about his insanely great band Cold Sun. If you don't know him and you feel like maybe you could skip it, I want you to picture the underground bunker that literally was built to house this record down in Corpus Christi, Texas by legendary man of swell music taste Ashley Johnson, seeing as you don't want to fuck around down in hurricane country when he possessed the only copy ever made of one of the greatest records of all time. Yeah, you heard me right. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Most seem to be choosing this path these days and here's your chance to find out why. Of course, be sure to mark your calendars because next Friday, June 16th, we're coming at you with David Pajo again in an action-packed episode about Slint. It's part four of Discography's nine-hour holy shit interview with the man himself. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.